Let us pray. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's that time of year again. Now that school is in full swing at the Williams house, Monday mornings have returned to be the most dreaded and difficult mornings of our lives, or at least of the week. You see, it's formal wear at my kids' school, the Augustine School, on every Monday, which means that everybody has to wear khaki pants and an Oxford shirt buttoned up with a nice belt and nice shoes, and the worst of all, a necktie. That is for the boys, anyway. It's so uncomfortable, I know. I remember because I had to dress kind of like this, except for the necktie, less on Easter. I had to dress like this for church every Sunday. You remember doing that, dressing up every Sunday for church because we have to look our best for the Lord. Well, I understand this concept. People used to show respect to God by saving their most, their best clothes to wear to church. It's a sort of first fruits of the wardrobe, so to speak. But I think the unintended consequence is that it suggests that we cannot appear before the Lord until we are all cleaned up. I don't think that's the intention, but I think that's the consequence. Now today, few of us dress differently for church than we would for any other occasion. But at the same time, I would say that this concept still permeates our Bible, Bible Belt culture. There's a persistent idea sort of ingrained in our minds that we need to get all cleaned up before we pray, or before we go to church, or before we approach God in any way. Faith alone is our battle cry. But surely God likes a work or two in there, doesn't he? Well, this may not describe you, but I think it probably describes many of your family members or your coworkers or your neighbors. The fact is that the gospel is scandalous because it relies completely on what St. Paul calls the righteousness of God. That is because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf, getting cleaned up for God is a vain pursuit which is a good thing because I don't think I see any neckties here. Jenny said, oh boy, you're going to make everybody wear neckties next, next week. Well, if you wear a necktie next week, that's great, wonderful. But if you do it because of this sermon, you've completely missed the point. So just keep that in mind. Well, as we've been tracking through the book of Romans to remember what we mean when we talk about the gospel, Paul has shifted his focus to the phenomenon that many of his fellow Israelites have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And last week in chapter 9, we saw that God's election of Israel was not based on their merits. You see, God chose them before they were even born, before they could choose good or evil. 
What may seem unfair is actually God's great mercy, and that's what we said last week. Tonight, Paul continues his concern for his fellow Israelites and explains the importance of preaching the righteousness of God to a people who seek to establish their own righteousness, or, in other words, to get all cleaned up for God. It isn't just the Israelites that do this, of course, because it's a basic human tendency. This is why it's so important for us as a church to understand the gospel that we share. Now, I've selected the middle chunk of Romans chapter 10 as our text for tonight, which consists of two basic main sections. First is the section where St. Paul summarizes the gospel and why it seems to be so scandalous. The second section is why it's so important for us to proclaim it. So we'll begin with the first section, which is verses 5 through 13. I'm not going to go through this verse by verse as I have been, but I'm going to, if you want to use your bulletin there to uh, reference, it might be helpful. Now, the term the righteousness of God is very important for understanding the book of Romans. Way back in chapter 3, Paul contrasted the righteousness of the law with the righteousness of God which he said was manifested apart from the law. He has spent the last several chapters explaining that in the gospel, that is in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see what righteousness looks like in the flesh. And not only that, but like Abraham, one simply believes God to receive this righteousness. Here in chapter 10, he maintains that this is still the case, even for his fellow Israelites. And how can he say this? Well, he uses Old Testament texts to to demonstrate that this has always been the case. First, he quotes Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, when he says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That is, you can indeed get all cleaned up for God. All you have to do is keep the law perfectly. That's it. But Paul also says, but there's a righteousness based on faith. And this is not just a New Testament teaching. He points to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, where Moses, before Israel is about to enter into the promised land, is giving the law. It's been a long time since God has given it to them from Mount Sinai. This is his relation, uh, relating it and reteaching it before they enter the land, right before he dies. And this is what he says in that text. Moses said, for this commandment, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is, this is what Moses says, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. Now, I need to say a word about what St. Paul is doing here. If you look back and read that passage in context, it seems that all Moses is really saying is, hey, Israel, 
Keep the law. Keeping the law is easy. Just do it. And that's probably the interpretation that many walked away with. But remember that Jesus conducted a grand Bible study with the apostles back in Luke chapter 24 after he's raised from the dead. You may remember that. There he teaches the apostles that all of the Old Testament is talking about him, about his death and resurrection for the fulfillment of all prophecy and all scripture and all the law. Throughout the New Testament, we see glimpses of what Jesus had taught his apostles as we read their writings, or at least how he taught them to read the Old Testament. So that's what Paul is doing here. He is taking what he knows about Jesus and the gospel and asking, how does the gospel enlighten or brighten these Old Testament texts? And what he saw in the Deuteronomy passage is what many of us see when we approach God. That it seems impossible, too hard for us, too far away for us to be able to do. We can never get cleaned up enough, can we? I've got to go up to the heavens or across the sea in order to do this. In other words, I have to go to lengths beyond my ability to get all cleaned up for God. Well, I think you actually hear this today. I think you hear it from t- any time that someone says that they feel judged by Christians. Now, there are pretty judgmental Christians out there, I will grant you. So I'm not talking about them. But I think it's often the case that our neighbors assume that we are holier than we actually are or at least that we think we're holier than we actually are. So this is why humility is so important for Christians, for each of us. People are going to think this about us. They're going to. So let's not give them any good reason to do it. I think in many of these cases, folks are actually convicted, and they know that they aren't holy. And we can provide a great service to our unbelieving friends by demonstrating that we're aware of this and that we're not as holy as we think we are or as they think we are. No, we are Christians because we have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, not because we got all cleaned up for God. That's how Paul understands the Deuteronomy passage when Moses said, the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart, so you can do it. You see, God cleans us up, not us. It's a matter of the proper order, isn't it? We aren't righteous because we always obey the law. That would be to establish our own righteousness, If we obey the law at all, it's because we have received the righteousness of God in Christ. So if this is the case way back in Deuteronomy, then it was the case for the Israelites in Paul's day. And it is the case for Gentiles for us in our day as well. For, Paul said, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Again, this is good news because none of us would get all cleaned up because none of us can get all cleaned up for God. God cleans us up. 
And that's why salvation is not too hard for us. We don't have to cross oceans or fly to the heavens. We simply believe. But how is this belief even possible? Well, for that, we turn to verses 14 through 17 in Paul's, uh, in chapter 10 of Paul's argument here. Now, it's not in uh, our passage tonight, but Paul begins chapter 10 by saying that his fellow Israelites have zeal, but no knowledge. The implication is that there is a lack of understanding. Now, this is not unique to the unbelieving Jews of his day, of course, but we know that this is the case for Jew and Gentile alike in our own day. Now, Paul will close chapter 10 with several other Old Testament texts that address the question why the Israelites of his day did not understand. But for now, he stresses the importance of proclaiming the gospel. Remember, this is why St. Paul is even writing this letter to the Roman Christians. His intention is to preach the gospel to the Romans and then to go on from Rome to preach the gospel in Spain. That was what he stated in the very beginning of this letter. And why did he want to do that? Well, because belief in the gospel does not occur unless someone proclaims it. Belief in the gospel does not occur unless someone proclaims it. In this brief paragraph, Paul presents a logical sequence of events. Uh, the great Anglican preacher John Stott helpfully uh, helps us, I think, in reversing the sequence to help us kind of understand it a little bit better. And he does it like this. He says, Christ sends heralds. Okay, that's not a word we use. A herald is somebody who who was once sent out to proclaim some kind of news before newspapers and internet and all of that. So Christ sends heralds. Heralds preach the good news. People hear. Hearers believe. Believers call. And those who call are saved. In other words, the gospel is not self-evident. It must be revealed. Our psalm tonight is from Psalm 19, which states that the voice of the heavens declare God's handiwork. That's not to say that we can look at the stars or any other part of nature and discern the gospel. That's not what it's saying. What the heavens declare is that there is a God who has created all things. But Psalm 19 goes on to say that not only that, but that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You see, a narrowing of God's revelation. In other words, God has revealed himself, not just in creation, but through his law. But we know that the law is impossible to keep. The gospel or the righteousness of God manifested apart from the law must be revealed to us. And this is done, Paul says, through preaching. Now, we are to take uh, from this that all Christians are called to do what I'm doing up here right now. The word, the word used for preaching simply means to herald or to proclaim something that was previously unknown. The idea is that when some, something big happens, a herald is sent out to inform the people publicly. In other words, it's a public announcement. It's relevant to everyone. 
Something not to be whispered in the darkness. It's not something that we keep to ourselves, is it? We're not to hide our light under, under a bushel. What we need to take from this is that others will not believe the good news. And here I want us to think about our friends and our neighbors who think they need to get cleaned up before they could ever be loved by God. Those folks are not going to believe unless someone explains the gospel or proclaims the gospel to them. And that's very sobering. Now, this is a difficult day for evangelism, isn't it? Well, I think some that may in our Southern Bible Belt culture think they need to get cleaned up before, I still think that, uh, before that they can appear before or be loved by God. I think there's a growing narrative that finds the unclean life quite comfortable. Why bring God into it at all? As this narrative grows and the old narrative sort of dwindles, you and I still have the responsibility to proclaim the gospel. So as I bring this to a close, I want to challenge you to reimagine evangelism. Reimagine evangelism. I have just four points that might help you to start reimagining evangelism, helping us to reimagine evangelism. The first one is this. Now listen very carefully. Recalibrate your language of sin. Recalibrate your language of sin. Notice what I did not say. I did not say redefine sin, just to recalibrate the language we use when we talk about it. You see, there was a day where we all kind of knew what sin was. All you had to do is really preach against sin and people would be convicted and you could offer the, the uh, forgiveness of Christ. That was an evangelism of yesteryear. Well, what's the problem with that? Who cares about sin anymore? Who agrees on what sin is anymore? Who even agrees that there is such thing as sin? You know, the gospel is predicated. This is what Paul sensed the, uh, the first couple chapters of Romans doing. It's predicated on the fact that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. Without sin, we have no gospel. Without a doctrine of sin, we have no gospel. So who cares about sin anymore? Well, I want to suggest to you that everyone cares about sin. It's just that we've given it a new name. One of the new names that I notice is that we just call it injustice. You see, everyone lives according to a moral standard, some sort of law. But even if we design our own moral systems, the secret is those are impossible to keep. So whether we acknowledge God and our moral systems or not, we all long to be free from self-earned righteousness, and that's the point. We long for the righteousness revealed apart from the law, the righteousness of Christ. So recalibrate the language we use to talk about sin, not redefine it. Second, and this, is, this might be a little bit of a stretch and maybe a little bit different, different a little strange, but uh, hear me out. 
Embrace tradition. Embrace tradition. What I mean is that you have walked into an ancient tradition of following Jesus, the Anglican way. Now, this Anglican way is part of a much longer tradition of, that we call the Christian tradition. As we learn the traditions of the church, we become sort of cultural archaeologists, so to speak. We can help people understand why we sing about the 12 days of Christmas or why Mardi Gras even exists. And not only this, but we have been grafted into a Jewish tradition with its Sabbath practices and its history and its holy days. I'm not suggesting that we go and submit to these practices. Paul has plenty to say about not doing that. All I'm saying is that we live in a culture that is largely dispensed with tradition, period. But I've discovered that people hunger for it. Now, let me be clear. The tradition, the Christian tradition, is not the gospel itself. But these are ways that we can connect with our culture that is longing for tradition. So embrace tradition. Third, invite others to live the gospel with you. How has the gospel shaped your life? What difference has it made in your everyday existence? Has it led you to care for others that are less fortunate? Invite others to join you, to serve in your community. Has it changed your dinner table? Invite people to dinner. Has it changed your prayer life? Invite others into your prayer life. Just one note on that. There's a big buzzword that goes around today, mindfulness. I'm sure you know what mindfulness is. I see it all of the time. If you look into mindfulness, it's got all kinds of strange new age stuff connected with it. But at the very center of it, it's basically it's basic spirituality, just without Christ. So we can connect with other people in these ways as unashamed Christians. We can invite other people. We can share with these things. Tell me about your mindfulness practices. This, makes me, this, this reminds me of prayer, meditation. This reminds me of these ancient traditions that we have in the church. Let me tell you about that. That's interesting. It's just a way that we can connect with people and open up opportunities to explicitly share the gospel, not in a confrontational way, but in a way that is helpful and winsome. Of course, these things are not the gospel themselves. They just help us. They give us a way to, do, to talk about it. So invite others to live the gospel with you. And the last one is this, share the gospel in love. Share the gospel in love. Don't be a jerk. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin. That's not our job, right? Connect with others when and where you can and let God do the rest. So recalibrate your language of sin. Embrace the Christian tradition. Invite others to live the gospel with you. And share the gospel in love. There are countless of others. Get creative. The point is that we have good news to proclaim. We have good news to proclaim. 
Remember that none of us has to get cleaned to be loved by God. He's the one that does the cleaning up. So with that, now go and proclaim the good news. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us opportunities with our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones, those strangers that we come into contact with, people we work with, those at our schools, Lord, everyone that we come into contact with. Would you give us opportunities to proclaim the gospel, open doors for us to be able to proclaim this good news. We pray, Lord, that you would use Mission St. James, that you would use each one of us in our own unique ways, the ways that you have made us, the ways that you have wired us, to go and proclaim the good news, not to hide the gospel, but to proclaim it boldly in the way that you have designed us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.